Who's ready to finish Ruth here? Uh, it's been funny the reaction I've got to this sermon series. Everybody's been really into it. Somebody said this week that it's kind of like a Netflix series. And you got to just stick with it and watch the next one. And um, Today we finish our journey in Ruth. Uh, we began with a woman named Naomi who left Israel during a time of famine with her husband and two sons. And uh, only to find that when she was in Moab, the place they had run, an enemy of Israel, that her husband died. So her sons had two wives, but they couldn't have any children, and both of her sons died. So she is in Moab, a foreign land. She has no husband, no man, no male heir. This is a dangerous point because women in those days could not own property, could not hire to have uh, the property worked. And they could not testify in courts, which means they're very vulnerable. And so, uh, very, very dangerous situation. Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem, which she hasn't been at for over 10 years. And she had left her people in the middle of a drought. And Ruth comes with her. Ruth the Moabite, the daughter-in-law from these foreign people. And really, the whole book of Ruth is a trial of God in narrative form. The question is, is God bitter? Or is God good and kind? And uh, Naomi, when she gets back to Bethlehem, says, Call me Mara. Call me bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. And is that the correct view of God? Ruth decides to go out gleaning for food, which means she goes after the harvesters and picks up what they missed. She happens upon the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz is a kind and worthy man who takes care of her and watches out for her and tells her to stay there. He tells her that God has put her under God's wing. We also find out that Boaz is a redeemer. And a redeemer is a relative who has the opportunity to buy the land of another relative. But in doing so would also be marrying. He'd have to marry Ruth and so that she could have a son. Uh, it would be very costly. You'd have to buy the land out of your own estate, but then you wouldn't get to totally keep that estate because that family would eventually have their own son and you might have your own son getting your own property. So after a few months of gleaning and in the care of Boaz, Naomi hatches a plan for Ruth to go to Boaz and ask for marriage. This is difficult because women were not allowed to set up their own marriage. And so she had to do this subtly, she had to do this carefully, and she had to do this honorably. So at night, she, she gets dressed up and she goes and lays down at his feet underneath of his blanket. And your blanket was sort of considered like your wing. And uh, in some cultures, when you get engaged, uh, it's still in a lot of Arabic cultures today, the man will throw his coat over the woman to say, she's under my wing and she's under my, my household. And so she's asking him to marry her. This sounds like a great idea, but how could this work? He is a wealthy Jew. She is a destitute Moabite. This is Romeo and Juliet well before Shakespeare. How can this possibly work? But he goes to visit, she goes to visit him and uh, he's willing. He's willing. And we think maybe the story is going to end right there. End of chapter three. It's all good. But, but no, there's another hitch. There's another problem. The problem is that Boaz is not the first in line to have the right to redeem the property and to redeem Ruth. There's another family member who has that right. And so we're left sort of waiting to see what's going to happen. 
And Ruth and, and Naomi are actually not in the story anymore. This now zeroes right in on Boaz and his response the next day. And so we with them have been waiting. And because I was on study leave, you guys had to wait two weeks to try to find out what happened. So let's pick up the story and then we'll talk a little bit about what we can learn from this book. The day after Ruth had come to visit Boaz, he sits at the gate and waits for the closer redeemer who is unnamed to show up. Now, this sounds strange to us, but in those days, there's no phone. There's no email, right? How do you set a meeting with somebody? There's no contracts. There's no legal deals. How do you make arrangements with somebody? Well, those all would happen at the gate to the city because that's where everyone would come in and would go out. And so as a, as a landowner and as a business leader, you would often have to go down to the gate to see what business needed to be done and any transactions that needed to be approved. So Boaz knows that eventually this other redeemer is going to show up at the gate and he stays there and he waits for him. And when he finally sees him, he says, friend, come on over here. And uh, friend is a familiar term, but not a real familiar term. It sounds like this is a relative he knows, knows him, but is not necessarily real close to. And he calls 10 elders, 10 leaders from the community that can come over and hear this and be witnesses to the deal. Because remember, there's no contracts. And whenever you had to buy property, whenever it was something like this where you're redeeming, it was a big, it was a big deal. It would have made a big deal in the community. And so Boaz explains all the situation, that there's this land and it needs to, except he leaves out one piece. He leaves out Ruth. If you pay attention to the story, he does not tell the Redeemer that's closer about Ruth. Tells him about the deal and the Redeemer says, sure, I'll buy the land. I'll do it. I can redeem the land. And then Boaz says, but one little caveat here. There's Ruth the Moabite. This is the first time that Boaz has called her the Moabite, by the way. He calls her Ruth most of the time. Okay, Ruth the Moabite, and when the, when the Redeemer that's closer hears this, he backs out. Now why? We're not quite sure. Is it because she's a Moabite? We, we don't know. We don't know his motives. We do know that it would be costly for him. Again, he'd have, to sell, he'd have to sell part of, he'd have to get some of his estate so that he could buy this other land. And then he would have to have a child with Ruth, his new wife. And then that child would eventually take over that property, which means he would diminish his own estate for his son only for the purpose of having the estate go to this other son. It was a big sacrifice to redeem. It was a big cost to redeem for your family. There's a reason why it doesn't happen very often in the scripture. There's a reason why there are a lot of widows and orphans and we need to take care of widows and orphans uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament because this just didn't happen very much. It was too costly and so he tells Boaz to redeem the field and redeem Ruth. The text explains a ritual where the redeemer would offer his shoe uh, as a show of the deal. And since the author is writing that and explaining it, it means whenever the author wrote it, it probably wasn't a deal anymore, which is why some scholars think Ruth is actually written much later, maybe in a time where there was a real fighting about whether we could or could not marry Moabites. Either way, we don't quite understand this deal either. Apparently, you'd give your shoe as a sign that you made the deal. So if you were a business leader, I assume you just had a bunch of sandals. Because anytime you make a deal, you've got to hand over one of them. Boaz then announces that he has purchased the land and actually that he has acquired or purchased Ruth as his wife. 
Now, this is, again is one of those situations where we, as modern Americans, might have trouble with the language here. I'm not sure I like the idea of acquiring or buying a wife. Anybody else? Um, but, but I don't think it's trying to imply that Ruth is property. Certainly, Boaz has not treated her as property. I think it's just the language that represents the cost that Boaz has to pay to redeem her as his wife. It's a cost. He has to pay. He has to take care of the property in order to do this. And so Boaz, as an honorable man, does that. He pays for the property. He's willing to take Ruth. In fact, you get the hint. Though we haven't, this hasn't been written quite as a love story the way we would write it today. It's not all sloppy. We haven't had kisses or, you know. But you get the feeling that they really do love each other. They really sort of have found in each other something of the other, right? Something of each other's worthiness and honorable uh, nature. And so he is very willing to marry her. The community then gives a blessing for Boaz and for his marriage with Ruth. They bless him by connecting him to the history of Israel and the land of Ephrathah, which is where Bethlehem was. This is a recognition by the community that this is a great moment for Boaz and for Ruth. And they're coming together as something big and historical. And they're recognizing that God is behind it. And this is amazing because remember, Ruth is not Jewish. She is a Moabite. So for the elders to recognize the honor in this marriage says a lot about both Ruth and Boaz. Now, let me read for you the rest of Ruth, chapter 4, and see how the story ends. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, And became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse father david so we get our happily ever after after all there is a marriage and there is a son and god who has been in the background of this story god hasn't been officially acting this whole time remember the text even says that she wanders into the field of boaz as if maybe god is not behind it but for the first time in this story god acts directly in opening up the womb of ruth And the women of Israel say a blessing over Naomi. After all, we call this the book of Ruth, but ultimately the story is about Naomi and her questions of God. Will God save her? Will God be faithful? But now Naomi holds this little child in her hand, the answer to her prayers. God has been faithful. And he has been faithful to her through Ruth the Moabite. She was not quite sure what was a gift in the first place. Remember when she came back to Israel, what did she say? I came back empty. I came back with nothing. I came back empty. To which Ruth must have been saying, wait a minute. 
came back with me. But she didn't see Ruth as a benefit. And yet now these women who are blessing her say, she's better than seven sons. Her, your daughter is better than seven sons. That's a huge compliment in a culture where you had to have sons, where only sons could own property. Better than seven sons for you to have Ruth, because look how faithful Ruth has been. And now Naomi gets to act as a nurse to this child, and they name him Obed. Naming, by the way, in the Bible is important. Okay, what you name a child is important. Obed means to worship or worshiper. Obed is the little worshiper. That's who Obed is. So now we have Naomi, who doesn't have people call her Mara anymore. She's not called bitter anymore. And she has a grandson named Worshipper. And what do you notice about, Naomi, about Ruth? Is Ruth called Ruth the Moabite in the end here? No, she's just Ruth. She has made her own name, not the name of her people and of her past. There are lots of name changes right here at the end that should be a hint to us that something has changed. And then there's this long list of names and genealogies. Now, I know what it's like to read genealogies. And when we get to genealogies in the Bible, there's a tendency for us to do what? Skip them. We pass over the genealogies. I know that we do that. And who wants to try to figure out how to say Aminadab anyway, right? But if you skip this genealogy, you miss the story. You miss the whole story. Okay, because it tells you miss a huge part of what's going on in Ruth. This list begins with Perez. Perez is the son of Judah. Judah was the eldest of the 12 brothers who were the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, he's the son of Jacob. He's the brother of Joseph who had the coat of many colors. Right. Okay. That's that's all. This back goes back that far. So this child is tied directly into the history of Israel. But, but it's the future that's most important. Ruth and Boaz have Obed. Obed has Jesse. Jesse has David. Anybody know David? That's King David. That's King David. Okay, Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. And that means King David has Moabite blood in his veins. Okay, he has a Moabite Relative. Do you understand how radical this is? I mean, he's King David, one of the great patriarchs of the faith. Some, in fact, think that maybe Ruth was written later as an argument against, forbidden, uh, against marrying Moabites because, after all, King David has Moabite blood in his veins. This book is used by the Israelites to talk about being welcoming to other people. So let's think about this book for a second. The big question in this book is what is what kind of God is God? Is God kind and loving and faithful or does God deal bitterly with us? And the answer in the book is that God is a resoundingly kind and loving God. Not only does he bless Ruth and Naomi, he blesses the whole nation of Israel by giving them the line that would lead to King David. Hugely, hugely important in bringing the people of Israel together. God has been working behind the scenes the whole time to set up Ruth and to set up Boaz. And he is working to bless the world through his blessing of them. But I also love how real the Bible is here. The fact is, things do go badly. 
The fact is that, that we live in a sinful and broken world. And you all have felt the sting of that at different times in your life. And the Bible doesn't pretend like those things don't happen. And we as Christians have got to stop trying to tell people when bad things happen that they're not really bad things. Because they are bad things. You know, you don't, don't tell people that everything happens for a reason. Because that's, by the way, not in the Bible. And a lot of times the reason that things happen is because we live in a sinful and broken world. Okay, it's not the way God intended it to be. That's not the good news that everything is good and everything works out fine. That's not the good news. The good news is that the world is broken and that things are going to happen to us and that God is with us in the middle of them. That God sometimes takes the garbage that we live in and works out that the good things will happen in the middle of it. And it's amazing sometimes, like Ruth and Boaz, you get to see it. You get to see it all work out. But you know what? The Bible never promises that we get to see that. The Bible never promises we get to see what kind of good things God might bring out of what we go through. In fact, I've seen people go through things that are completely unexplainable. And yet the Bible just insists. The Bible just insists that we should trust God in the middle of those things. That we should hang on to God in the middle of those things. And we are heading towards Easter. Where we were reminded in a way that Ruth and Naomi could not have possibly understood that God is good and kind and giving. Because it is in the nature of Jesus to be like Ruth. Just like Ruth was willing to walk with Naomi into another land, Jesus comes to another land for us. We call it the Incarnation. We learn in Jesus that it is not God's nature to deal bitterly with us, but to walk through our bitterness with us and take on our bitterness, even the bitterness of the cross. More than Ruth, Jesus is like Boaz. Jesus is an upright and worthy man, but he is also our Redeemer. A Redeemer, what does a Redeemer do? He pays a great cost to redeem somebody from slavery, to redeem somebody from their lostness. And to give them freedom and joy and hope. And Jesus redeems us on the cross. He pulls us under his wing and gives us care. And treats us as his kinsmen, as his family that he would die for us. Even though we don't deserve it. In fact, it's not that it's undeserved grace. It's ill-deserved. Whatever grace we get from God, whatever redemption we get from God, we deserve the opposite of it. We deserve God's judgment And yet Jesus takes on our judgment. And just as God cares for Ruth and Naomi in their struggles, so Jesus takes us under his wing. And he is always present with us in the Holy Spirit. He cares for us. He walks with us when we're doubting. And though we don't always see it, and we don't always understand it, he's bringing good and he's bringing love even in the midst of our pain and suffering. Did you know that the Gospel of Matthew, which begins the New Testament, is the most Jewish of the Gospels? Matthew makes great effort in his Gospel to try to say to Jewish people that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And he starts his book with a genealogy. Now, you probably skipped over said genealogy, because we all do that, right? But if you read that genealogy, what you would find is Matthew does something very unusual for genealogies of his day, in that he lists women as part of the story. And one of the women that he lists in the lineage of Jesus is Ruth, the wife of Boaz. Matthew tries to make this claim in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, 
that Ruth is part of the Jesus story. That Jesus is part of the redemption story, just foreshadowed in Ruth, but that comes to fruition in Jesus. And she would be like the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus somewhere in there. Let me try to bring this together for you with a story. Dennis Rainey tells the story of a missionary family that was home on furlough. A lot of times when missionary families come home, they don't have a home to stay in. And so they would borrow a house. And this particular family, particular family stayed in a lake house of somebody that they knew. And they had three kids, a 12-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 4-year-old. So they're at the lake house. And the dad is working around at the boathouse. And the mom is getting lunch ready in the kitchen. And the kids wander down to the dock. Because they've been in a missionary field without a lot of water, they, they don't know how to swim. And the four-year-old falls off the dock into the water. And so the 12-year-old runs, yells for her dad, and her dad comes running down to the end of the dock and dives in the water, and he dives down, taking a deep breath as he goes under, and he, he, he can't find his son. He's searching, searching, searching. Finally, he's got to go back up, get a deep breath, go back down again, and he's searching, searching, and he can't find his son. Goes up for one last breath, takes a deeper breath. It takes him a second, and he goes back under, and he finally finds his son, and his son is hugging the post that holds the dock up. I mean, just arms and legs around and He's got to go down and pry his son off of the dock. And he pulls his son up and they get him out. His son's been under for a long time now. So they got to get the water out of his lungs. And when he finally the son calms down and is all right, the dad says, son, what were you doing down there? And the son said, just waiting for you, dad. Just waiting for you. Life comes at us and we go through difficult times. But the picture of faith that is given in scripture and the picture of faith that is defended in the book of Ruth is that of just hanging on. Just a childlike trust that, Lord, I'm going through bad stuff and it would be really, really easy for me to doubt you right now. And I'm just going to insist. I'm just going to decide to trust you anyway. Anybody who says Christianity is a crutch has never had to do that. Okay? Because it's much easier to give up on God, actually, sometimes when difficulties come. It's much harder to just insist that even though things are bad, I'm going to just cling and I'm going to trust and I'm going to wait for you, Dad. I'm going to wait for you. And it doesn't always work out the way we want it to. Not every bad situation works out with a beautiful marriage. Not all struggles and prayers end with the birth of a child. But at the same time, What Ruth and Naomi found was a different level of love and a different level of freedom and a different level of trust. God knows what you need. He knows what you ask for. He knows what you want, but he also really knows what you need. And you can trust him. You can cling to him to be good and to be kind. Sometimes even against what your eyes are seeing and what your heart is feeling. Let us pray. Lord, help us to trust that you are good, that you are kind, and that you have us. Give us the faith of Ruth to boldly do what we have to do in this world, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, but trusting that you're going to be there, that you are going to be our Redeemer. Let us live out of that reality. Amen.